permission I can get to go ahead and get started on this. Here's something you can help me with. Anyone here able to tell the, the meaning of dreams? If I've been having a dream, I'll make it easy for you. I, I won't even ask you to tell me the dream and the interpretation. I'll give you the dream, and then you tell me what the interpretation is. And if you can help me, I want to hear it later. Um, this is a, just a little highly. Um, so I've had a reoccurring dream about uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And in this dream, we got through exactly one single chapter of Jeremiah. <laughs> I've had this dream more than once. <laughs> Maybe you can tell me what that means. <laughs> Too much sugar. That's most likely it. Whether one chapter or five or whatever it is, when we're together in the Word, this will be a blessing to us if we have the ears to hear it, if we have the hearts to truly seek God. And so... Whatever the case is, let's, uh, let's see what we can see tonight. So we're in Jeremiah, so let's be in chapter 35 as we come back to, just quickly, our review. We skipped last week because, frankly, I think you uh, have, or, or, or have a good sense of what we've been seeing in Jeremiah and what we'll continue to see for sure, for sure, this evening. First of all, with regard to the people... You know, Jeremiah faced a, a difficult task. And so for years now, for years, he's been trying to reach people who would listen. And uh, by and large, the disposition of the people is what? That not interested, not willing to hear, not willing to consider, not willing to turn. And it's created a situation where God's people don't even know him and what he's truly about and what he wants and what he delights in and what he will do. And more and more tonight, we're going to see a revealing that God will make himself known to them in a, a variety of ways. But we get to start uh, this evening on a high note. So on that in a minute. They, we need to remember too, this essential character of God. It would do us no good. Well, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll own that statement. It would do us no good to go through the book of Jeremiah and treat it like history, purely as history. I think the more important goal here is to get a sense of what this is saying to us. And to get a sense of what it's saying to us, we need to know what it's saying to these ones about themselves and what it's saying to this audience about God. Um, history will do us... Um, much less good than a coming to an understanding of who God is. We want to know who God is. And all of God's new covenant people will truly know him. They will know that in his essential character, as laid out in Exodus 34 and many other places, his character is that he is merciful. And this means he's slow to anger um, and he is extremely patient. But, on the other hand, he's just, and he always does what's right. And this means that sin can't go unpunished because he is a holy God and he cannot tolerate this. And then tied up in that is this idea. Pointing to God's goodness is the fact that he has, keeps loyal love. That's one of the ways that the translations try to give it, a difficult uh, Hebrew word. Loyal love for his people. And this especially points to the fact that he always keeps his promises and keeps his covenants. 
So having, having gone back through that, let's see if we find that and see that as we um, are in the text tonight. But we start with a bright spot because by and large you have people who haven't listened and certainly haven't uh, done what the Lord would have them do. But in Jeremiah 35, are you there? In Jeremiah 35, just a really remarkable uh, account. <clears throat> Jeremiah is given uh, another one of these instructions that's going to turn into a, a, a lesson, an object lesson. And what he's told is in chapter 35, you're going to host the, the men that, known as the Rechabites, the, the descendants of Jonadab. You're going to host them, invite them to come. Here's what you do. Serve them your best and put wine on the table for them to drink in that. So listen to uh, verse 6. And so Jeremiah does all of this. And verse 5, he says, I set before the men of the house of the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. But they said, we will not. We will not drink wine. And here's why. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons forever. He gave them some other instructions in verse 7. He says, I don't want you to build houses. That's not your type of dwelling. That's not what our family will do. Um, or even plant vineyards. See, these are things that will tie you down. He intends them to dwell in tents. What about all of this? In verse 8... They said, in all of these things, we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he commanded us, not to drink wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, not to build houses um, or have vineyards or seed, but to dwell only in tents. We have done, listen to verse 10, we have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, has commanded us. God called, the, called these men here, and Jeremiah, this had to be the best day he's had, <laughs> to be in the presence of people who have listened, turned, and followed. What is this all about? God intends to teach a, message, uh, teach a lesson based on the behavior and the, the faithful behavior of these men. And so that's where we find in verse 13. This is, this is the, the words of the Lord explaining what this is all about. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Go and say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction by listening to my words? Declares the Lord. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are observed. They observe his commandments. So they don't drink wine to this day, all this time, faithfully keeping the commandments. But, middle of verse 14. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not listened to me. Also, I've sent you all of my servants, the prophets, sending them again and again, uh, saying, 
Turn now, every man, from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after the gods to worship them. And then you will dwell in the land. Turn and live, he says, which I've given to you. But you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Indeed, the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have observed the command of their father, which he commanded them. But this people has not listened to me. I can't help but think of uh, these several passages, but what we're seeing is these, these men, they obeyed their father. And it was complete obedience. It was, you know, uh, faithful uh, obedience and faithful keeping. But the, children, the sons of Judah had not done this. Um, and not only had they not kept it, but they hadn't even listened. J- j- passages of Scripture just populate readily into your mind when you think about a father and his sons and what that relationship should be. case of the uh, Rechabites, it was everything it should be, seems like. But in the case of the men of Judah, not so. Malachi 1 verse 6 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then God says, If I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, declares the Lord of God. See, they had the same problem as um, the men of Judah in, in the days of Malachi. And since I will continue to um, steal from our Hebrews class, uh, preemptively even, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, I, I, couldn't be, I couldn't help but think of this as well. Th- look, at the, look at the argument here. The argument is, people honor their own fathers. <laughs> what about God? How will they respond to God? Well, in Hebrews 12, verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. And what was the result of that? We respected them. We respected our fathers. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? This is exactly what... Uh, God is trying to say through Jeremiah to the sons of Judah. Shouldn't you, you, you know, you, you can see people who honor their own fathers. You probably did yourself. If you didn't, uh, you were likely to be stoned to death. But for sure here, even as adults, they've honored their father. Well, should we not much rather? And very, very obvious uh, answer to that. But God had spoken and they hadn't listened. And one more verse from Hebrews chapter 12 He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse to listen. Don't refuse to obey. And he says, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, that's that's like Jeremiah and others through, through Jeremiah, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And so naturally, in all of this, Judah is going to see all the, well, the displeasure of the Lord. But on the other hand, these men of the Rechabites, at, toward the end of chapter 35, we won't read this, but God pronounces a, uh, a permanent blessing on them. They're the ones that receive favor from the Lord, and it's because they demonstrated the heart of obedience and listening that, uh, that God is all about. What do you want to say about chapter 35 before we go on? And, and if nothing, you can be turning to chapter 25 
after Bruce has what he has, says what he has to say. Again, he's comparing God with man. You know, we, we look at fathers, and there are good fathers and bad fathers. But even good fathers that are human sometimes have bad days, and sometimes they, they act emotionally, maybe. They may have troubles of their own, just as we've been talking about priests, earthly priests. But God is continual, unchanging, the same today as he was yesterday. But it's conditional. As you said, it's conditional as to whether we receive blessings or curses, just as mm -hmm. God said in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the perfect Father, what what response should we be giving Him if we're the one? If we know we know well enough to honor our fathers, right? Well, I know it's a, a little bit of a a juggle to go from one place to another in throughout Jeremiah. We'll be flipping a little bit tonight. Um, just in a, an effort to kind of keep the story uh, pretty close to our timeline. What we've done is we've passed from the time of Josiah into the days, the early years of uh, King Jehoiakim. And so what you'll see, in fact, in verse uh, chapter 25 is this will be the fourth year of Jehoiakim. So it's that red, that last little red segment of uh, the timeline, that's, that's what we're seeing just, just shortly before, well, the, the uh, sunset of this nation. And what we see in chapter 25 is this. God has sent his prophets again and again. The actual idiom, I think, is, is this. God has sent his prophets rising early and sending them rising early and speaking to them. So where your translation may in verses 3 and 4 say again and again, that's just trying to help us convey in English this idiom. But I almost like the, uh, the more literal phrase better. From the first thing in the morning, every day, what has God's purpose been? Reaching out to his people, right? Rising early. And sending them. He's wasting, wasting no time and absolutely uh, dedicated. What is what we are seeing in verse uh, 3? Jeremiah is giving a bit of a recap of what has gone on, and the Lord will speak to this. Jeremiah 25, verse 3 From the 13th year of Josiah, uh, this is the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. So this is 23 years of Jeremiah announcing these same words of the Lord to the people. And in verse 4, it's not just Jeremiah. Everyone has been busy. Everyone that the Lord could employ has been busy. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, or rising early and sending them. But you've not listened or inclined your ear to hear. Um, it reminds me of what is said in Isaiah 65, all day long, rising early, right? All day long, I've stretched out, I've spread out my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. What is that trying to convey? The idea is, it's like, it's a welcome, right? It's, a, it's an open invitation for them to return. 
But the Lord stretches out his hands in, in a variety of different ways. And if they're not willing to come when he spreads out his hands and invites, then um, those hands will be stretched out against them to do those things that we keep reading about, to break down, to overthrow, um, to even make war. I will make war with them, he will say, with an outstretched uh, arm, outstretched hand. And, but then finally, the, the, the hope that they can have in the Lord and his great goodness is given in chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. He will say that the other thing he has in mind is to stretch out his hand, just like in the days of the Exodus, when he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He brought them out, <laughs> pulled them out. In the same way, they can look forward to a second exodus where he will reach out his hands and bring them back. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That's not how they will remember him. But instead, they will remember that he is the Lord who lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries to which he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. So, a second exodus with his outstretched hand. But I just, I saw that and I couldn't help but think of these related uh, thoughts. Bringing them back. If they had inclined their ear to hear, they could have, God may have found the response that he was looking for in verses, well, 5 through 7. They didn't listen, and they did not say, verse 5, Turn now, everyone from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds. And the result would be that they could dwell in the land uh, forever and ever. And they hadn't listened to turn away from the other gods. And so, verse 7, you have not listened to me. It's the whole, the whole theme of Jeremiah. You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. They're only hurting themselves. They realized this from time to time. When they said, okay, Jeremiah, we can't tolerate this. We're going to do something to get him off the scene. Kill him maybe even. They realized, actually, this is not a good idea. We're only hurting ourselves if we do this. And yet they didn't go the next step and actually listen to what Jeremiah had to say. And so they were only hurting themselves. And you may remember in Jeremiah 5, two times, and then also in Jeremiah 9, but not those. You may remember the statement that um, the Lord made, shall I not punish a people such as this? On a nation like this, shouldn't I avenge myself? It's like, you're only hurting yourself. And so, should, will he recompense and all of those things? Yes, he will. So, listen to verse 14. He says that many nations and great kings will make slaves of them, even them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the um, work of their hands. All the words he said, they, he will bring about. So this is the, the Lord's efforts to reach them. They're going to get a dose of something else instead. And that's what um, we'll see toward, you know, for the second half of this chapter. If you think about uh, cupbearers in the Old Testament, who do you think of? Joseph, yeah? Uh, yeah, in the days of Joseph, yeah, there was the, the cupbearer that he spoke to. Yeah, Nehemiah, sure. 
may have been others, but I, those are the two I think of. You think of Jeremiah, do you realize he was a cupbearer as well? That's what you see here in uh, coming down to, well, verse 14 and 15. Now, I want to remind you of one of the famous sayings of the people that evidently they were used to saying. The words of the people that were repeated and that Jeremiah spoke to in chapter 13, uh, verses 12 through 14, so were these. Therefore, you speak the words, this word to them, thus says the Lord of Israel, every jug is to be filled with wine. Evidently, as far as I can tell, quoting something that they would say. And when they say to you, do we not very well know that every jug is to be filled with wine? Well, that has a different meaning when the Lord is involved. Now, I think what they would have meant by this uh, statement is the idea that, you know, we're, we're dwelling in peace. And we have more than we need, so it's prosperity, peace, and prosperity. Every jug is to be filled with wine. The Lord uses this, maybe flips it on its head and says, it's not what you would hope. It's not what you're saying in these kind of false words of comfort, right? He says, yes, you'll, you'll have full cups of wine. But here's what it looks like. So listen, they'll drink all right. Verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of the wrath from my hand, and cause all the nations to which I send you to drink it. So Jeremiah is told to be a cupbearer. Generally, the cupbearer works in the best interest of the person he's serving. And I suppose that's the case with Jeremiah, although they wouldn't see it that way. He's going to carry the cup and make them drink. And can they handle it? Well, maybe not. So listen to verse 16. And they shall drink. And the result is they're going to stagger and go mad because of the sword that I send among them. So this, this cup is not uh, an ordinary cup, but it represents God's judgment, of course. And verse 17, all God's words, Jeremiah is going to speak. So... I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and I made all the nations drink, everyone that the Lord sent me to address. Um, he, he addresses all of the nations that surround Israel and says, all of them are going to drink, and at the end of it, king of Babylon, he'll be the last one. He'll get the, the last and what's left, and it'll be, um, well, very bitter. The... Um, this wine of God's wrath will do to them what strong drink will do to anybody. And it will cause them to stagger. It says to go mad. It's like you're out of your mind. It will cause them to be drunk, to vomit, to fall, and not get back up. That's verse 27. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more. Because of the sword which I will send on you. And they may think that they can resist this in some way, but God says, you will surely drink. Um, and so, Jeremiah, the most important cupbearer in the, in the Old Testament, a cupbearer to all of the nations. Very interesting. Maybe you have some comments on that before we make some closing statements about uh, chapter 25. 
The, the end of this, there's a, a picture given. We won't read from this, but there's a picture given that God is the lion. He's the lion that's roared from Zion, as, uh, as uh, Amos will put it. And that's the final picture here. He's like a fierce, angry lion. You don't cross this kind of creature. You don't rouse this kind of creature. But that's what they had done. And they will know fear. He will teach them fear when he roars, strikes fear at the heart of anyone. Um, this lion will descend on the shepherds and the flocks. What, do you, what would that represent? The shepherds and the flocks here. Yeah, sure. Priests, among other, uh, others of the leaders of the, of the nation... At times, he gives, speaks of the civil leaders as being the shepherds. But certainly, you have to think of the uh, spiritual leaders that should have been guiding the people in the right way. And God would visit them, well, like a lion would terrify a, a shepherd and consume the flocks. Okay, we're flipping again. Come to Jeremiah chapter 36. And we're finding, really, coming toward the tail end of the words that Jeremiah will have for Jehoiakim, okay? Some of the last um, messages we have recorded for that. And what we see is, uh, in Jeremiah 36, the scribe and the scroll. <clears throat> We're still here in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And God's instructions to Jeremiah in verses 1 and 2, write all the words I have spoken to you on a scroll. What is the goal here um, in verse 3? What is the goal in this writing? Yeah. Right. Uh, Miss Diana said, another way for him to be heard. He's going to try by any means necessary, right? And it's being written, something that is shows the firm uh, permanence of these, these words. But certainly the, the whole hope is that in verse 3, perhaps they'll hear, perhaps they'll hear all the calamity that I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way so that I can forgive their iniquity and their sin. You'll remember in chapter 18, even if God is saying it's calamity now for you, he said, if they turn, if they repent, I will relent. Um, and that's, so don't, don't forget that very important passage in Jeremiah 18. If they repent, I will relent. And then what we uh, will see in the, for the remainder of this is, the word is read. It's read aloud and it's being heard by three different parties. So there were three in this, at this time, there were three different readings of this. It started to get attention. It was, another, it was certainly a way for the word to be heard. And so Jeremiah at this time, we'll see, is, in, is arrested and limited in what he can do. So his scribe, Baruch, is sent to read it, sent back to the temple as in at many other times, maybe we can reach the, the best of the best possibly at the temple. And so um, the three readings, and then we'll see correspondingly three different responses. Very interesting from this. It seems that Jeremiah, or, or Jeremiah's words 
read by Baruch, are, are making an impression because as Baruch reads these words to the people, they are, are, are giving heed to the words. Um, we don't know what kind of effect this is starting to take, but um, at least, as Miss Diana said, it is being heard. <laughs> being said in their presence. So when the people, uh, when it's read before the people, one in particular in verse 11, Micaiah, hears this and, and really pricks up and realizes this needs to be publicly and widely um, spread and everybody needs to know the, these words. Very important. And so in verses 11 through 19, the officials are already all gathered together, and they hear tell of what's being said, and they said, okay, get that man and bring him here, and we want it read to us as well. We want to know for, with our own ears what we're hearing, and, and, and is it legitimate? They'll have a question about that. And the, their response in all of this was, in fact, uh, good in, in, in many ways. In verse 16, now it came about when they heard all the words... They turned in fear to one another and said to Baruch, well, we're, we're going to report this to the king. And they're wondering how, these, how Baruch came to have all of these things written down. And it was Jeremiah's dictation, right? <clears throat> they go to tell the king, but they also, they realize that this message is unlikely to be welcome, right? And that's, that's how it's been from the beginning of Jeremiah's work unwelcome message gets uh, un unsavory responses. And so in verse 19, they do take some precautionary steps. They, they realize that Jeremiah's words are legitimate and that he speaks for God and they tell him in Baruch, you're in danger for your lives. You need to go hide. You need to go hide yourself. And so they, they protect uh, Jeremiah and Baruch. Very, uh, I would say, very commendable. And then there's the third reading. Because as these things become, are made known to the king, the king says, I'm going to hear these myself as well. And, but his, his response, well, is, is not, not good. They went to the court of the king in verse 20. Um, originally, they didn't bring the scroll. I wonder what they knew or what they anticipated. If the scroll would not be safe in the presence of the king. And in fact, sure, came about in verse 23 that when Jehudi had read, not, he's not even done reading. As he reads three or four lines, it seemed the, the king cut the scroll and uh, threw it in the fire that was just burning there in the brazier. And eventually the whole scroll is consumed. Can you, can you picture this scene? How brass do you have to be to be listening to what everybody realizes are the words of the Lord and just casually walk over there. I probably have a probably have some small cutting instrument here and taking out a sharp instrument. And as he's reading, he's, he reads two or three lines just and he cuts it out and, and throws it in the fire. Un unbelievable response in my estimation. Just a kind of a casual, fearless response to the words of the Almighty God. Boy. And so piece by piece, the, the scroll is, is burned up. 
Um, and he sends for Baruch and Jeremiah, but um, they, the Lord is with them, as God had said he would be, that he would protect them. And when he attempts to seize them, they're, they're protected by, uh, by the Lord. And at the end of this, the scroll is rewritten. See, how, well, how can you think that by destroying the writing, you've somehow removed the word of the Lord? Or maybe that wasn't his goal at all. Maybe it was just to show disdain and contempt for the word of the Lord. Um, it was spoken, and it couldn't be retracted. Um, so what was that burning all about? Probably, probably both things, just to show contempt um, and to, well, I don't know, as a demonstration that it will not be heard in the, in the courts of the king. When the scroll is rewritten, I find it very interesting that it says that many other words were added to the first ones, and part of that is there's some really nice choice additions about the king who thought he could destroy the word of the Lord by burning the scroll. And so he got special placement when the scroll was rewritten. What a, what a scene. We're going to go on to chapter 45 unless you have something to say because chapter 45 really will, will summarize what's being said there. Just a few short verses. And the summary of that is this. And, and this, this little chapter summary reads the same if you read it backwards or if you read it forwards. It's like a, you know, a palindrome. So God will preserve the one who preserves the will of God. I think if you read that backwards, like, like I said, I think it reads the, the same. But that's, that's, the, that's the idea. God is showing favor, protecting, and, um, yeah, showing favor to Baruch. Um, it sounds like Baruch in chapter 45 is struggling with that same bitterness that Jeremiah, especially early on, experienced. That speaking for God and speaking truth means that you'll, you will encounter opposition. Um, yeah, and, and it, will mean, it will mean hard work. And he needed to learn to suffer willingly and trust in God. And so he, he has given some instructions. He says, don't seek a name for yourself. Um, the whole earth is being destroyed. What, what, how do you think I should treat you? God will ask. He needs to trust God. He needs not to expect a life of ease when, at a time when God is bringing disaster on all flesh around him. But God does intend to preserve him for his faithfulness. Well, say what you need to say. Otherwise, we're going to chapter 24. <clears throat> Please. Mm -hmm. We've done much more than one chapter, so you can take as much time as you like. In, in uh, going back to what I was talking about in their trust in man rather than, than God, I, as I read these and studied uh, Jeremiah, it reminds me of their forefathers mm. who, when Moses came off the mountain, said, we don't want to hear God. You take care of it. Mm -hmm. And it seems like their entire pattern uh, has been, we want to trust in the, in the uh, high priests. We want to trust in the priests. Mm -hmm. But God is just too powerful and too uh, just for us. And so we'd rather trust uh, some, someone we know rather than come to know 
God. Mm -hmm. And it has always, always struck me that mm -hmm. their entire journey has resulted in uh, the bondage and things mm -hmm. when they, I don't want to hear from God, just as their king. They need a uh, buffer. As he, as he cuts they, it, they want he a buffer wanna... between them and God, right? And people do that today. We, don't, you know, I was talking to a, a gentleman today, and he didn't want to hear about baptism, you know, because mm -hmm. I'd rather trust in a, in someone else than, mm -hmm. than this. But when we get to the point where uh, we have no fear of God, either physical or spiritual, this is what it comes to. They put their trust in the in the countries around them mm -hmm. because they saw their false gods in their minds as making them prosperous and mm -hmm. strong. Mm -hmm. And God was just, he just wasn't up to what, what their need was. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. a tragic thing, but I, I've always thought that it began uh, their point of distrust of God at, at the foot of the Mount, of Mount Sinai. Yeah, very when interesting. When they said, we don't want to, you deal with him, we don't want to. Mm -hmm. We don't want to hear. Yeah. How can you um, be comfortable in the presence of the all-holy God? They knew what they were. They knew how, what God thought about them. So, yeah. <coughs> Very good thought. In Jeremiah th uh, 24 now, we've skipped just a little bit because it's Jehoiakim's son, uh, Jehoiakim, with an N at the end, who has been carried away into exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has come against the city, carried away um, about 10,000 uh, of the people of the land. Really, only the poorest were left over. And uh, as we had started to allude to before... Jehoiakim does become king. Well, okay, so let's re rewind to the promise to Jehoiakim. No man of your descendants will what? <clears throat> I'm hearing many whispers. No man of your descendants will prosper. Where, where will they not sit? On the throne of David in, Jer in Jerusalem and Judah. Yeah. And so it can't be the case that we'll see that happening. And, and indeed, um, Jehoiakim becomes king, reigns three months, but um, is almost immediately removed. If you um, go back to the accounts of the kings, it is said that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. So could he prosper and sit on the throne and reign in Judah. No. So, and that's what, if you um, want to try to bookmark that, you can see the very end of chapter 22. His father would be essentially childless. Write this man down childless. Um, <clears throat> and so that's kind of the historical context there. Nebuchadnezzar comes, carries away the officials, the mighty men, the craftsmen especially, the desirable ones to carry away. Um, and some uh, 10,000, according to 2 Kings 24, uh, for the historical context. But um, God is fond of using pictures to teach a lesson, and he does so again here. What do you see 
uh, Jeremiah. In verse 1, the Lord showed me, Behold, two baskets of figs, and they're set before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. These are fresh off the tree. Today, they, they were picked. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten due to rottenness. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? Here's your object lesson. I didn't bring any fruit with me tonight. What do you see, Jeremiah? And he said, uh, I see uh, figs. Uh, good figs, these are very good. Uh, and bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten due to rottenness. And in verse 4, what does it all mean? Why, are we gone, why have we gone to the temple to um, see fruit? The word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard... As good, the captives of Judah, whom I have sent out from this place into the land of Egypt. You're saying the ones that I care, Jehoiakim, and all of those, God's going to regard them as good? The ones who had done evil in the sight of the Lord and were carried off? Very interesting. We need, to, we need to grasp this and explain this. And he says, I will bring them again to this land. I'll plant, not overthrow. I'll plant, not pluck up. Um, more on that in a minute. And in verse 8... There are also bad figs. You can't, these are ones that cannot be eaten. If you go in your refrigerator and there was something that was forgotten because it was underneath something else in the uh, crisper drawer, you've all found something right there. And it's not, it wasn't savory. And you know what you did with that. And what will the Lord do with people that he can only view as bad figs? Rhetorical question. Don't answer that. You already know. It's, it would be very easy for... Jeremiah is speaking to the people of the land. We need to grasp kind of why this figure is being given to them in the few short minutes we have left. It would be very easy for them, and we've seen this before, to think that, um, you know, the people that were carried away, probably they're the ones getting what they deserved, and we can be secure. I mean, after all, the Lord has allowed us to stay in the land... And to feel justified in their ways, they feel like maybe they have God's favor. Um, because they're, after all, they're not the ones being carried off. So surely it's the wicked that have been carried away and the righteous that remain. I was working on a, an analogy to try to grasp what it's... If you see something that's being taken away and you say, no, but that's what's being saved. And what was left behind is what's being removed. I, so I thought of a couple things, maybe none of them any good, but one of them is if a neighbor sees you remodeling your house, I think probably the first thing that happens is some things are going to start being removed from the house. We, we pressure washed our front porch and there's furniture that's actually probably still out in the front yard at the moment. It's been removed from the front porch and somebody passing by might think, oh, they're, you know, they're cleaning house. They're due for some new furniture. No, that's the, we're saving the furniture and, and the things that have been removed from your house so you can go to work and rebuild and tear out, tear down. <laughs> um, that's what's going to be removed. That's what's no good. That's what's going to be thrown away when, when all of this is over and everything that was set aside, that's what's going to be 
brought back. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. If you go to the mechanic and you can see through the window where he's working, a lot of things got pulled off of your car to get to the part that's not working. It's broken. It needs to be fixed. It, you, you, you're going to have to dig in. So a lot of things, all those parts that came off, what about them? Well, they're still useful, still usable. They're going to go back on. But the, it has to be removed for the mechanic to deal with the real problem. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. But don't think, this will be difficult to explain in one or two minutes, but don't think it's because of their inherent goodness that these good figs are sent away and then shown God's favor. Not so at all. And it, that's revealed partly in this phrase. Again, we won't enter into this fully. We'll probably circle back to it next week. In this phrase that where God says, I will regard them as good. I think we need to understand this phrase to, to be saying that the reason he can view them as good figs is because of his mercy and his loving kindness and his forgiveness, not because of their sort of intrinsic worth as good fruit. And um, so it's, it really is probably based on God's goodness. Now, he desires their faithfulness. He requires their obedience. But if he's going to regard them as good, well, I think that says something about um, them and about God. <clears throat> he will say then that he intends to show them good. I, I really wanted to be able to read a lot of chapter 29 because it's saying the same thing. All of these ones, Jeremiah sent his message as well to the people who had gone away. They're hearing the same thing, only they're hearing that God's going to bless you. The people back in the land, bad figs, basically. They're going to be thrown out. They're not going to last. And yet, that God intends to show good and kindness and let the people prosper even in uh, captivity when they've been carried away. And then what is seen very clearly is that God intends to bring them back. Um, he is going to then... Uh, Build them, as he will say, plant them. The whole message of the book of Jeremiah is to pluck up, to throw down, but then also to build up and to plant. And he says, I will set my eyes on them for good. So he intends good on their behalf, and he will cause them to return to him with their whole heart. This has uh, probably two fulfillments. There's one that you might call a near fulfillment, where he will be causing to the best of his ability all people to be seeing his kindness, his goodness, um, and his mercy. And in uh, chapter 9, verse 24, you'll remember that we read, Let not the mighty man boast of his might and all of these others, but let a man, if he boasts, let him boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness justice and righteousness on the earth for I delight in these things. And he's trying to show that. And so he would cause them to know him in that way. But for sure, with the more distant fulfillment, the idea is that there's a new people intended that will know him um, in, in truth and in all that is right. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, Jeremiah 31. So we'll see that more later on. Thank you, everybody.